Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, September 30th. We begin with a look at Tuesday night's televised presidential debate. We get reaction from Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, on a debate that by most accounts had a lot of fireworks and no clear winner. Then we continue our analysis of the first presidential debate, but from a different angle. We speak with an expert in human behavior and body language on what cues we can take from each candidate without even hearing a word. Mercedes Stevenson is Ottawa bureau chief and host of the West Block for Global News. It was a long night for Mercedes, or you could say early morning. We get all the details on the Liberals' first non-confidence vote, which stretched from Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. And finally, Orange Shirt Day was created to raise awareness about the history and legacy of Canada's residential schools. We speak with a residential school survivor on the importance of the day and how it will look different this year amidst the pandemic. 707 now on your Wednesday morning. Sue DL and Andrew Schultz with you here on the morning news. Coming up just after 8 o'clock, we'll talk to a pharmacist about why the flu shot might be even more important this year than before. We'll do a little business, talk to Danielle as well, coming up in a bit and uh, coming up in just a moment. All eyes on Trump and Biden last night as they squared off in their first presidential debate. We'll check in with Global's Reggie Cicchini next. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. Boulevard and Southland Drive. Uh, we are also seeing that steady stream of headlights on the northeast end of Deerfoot Trail as well as you make your way down towards Memorial. We are just flying into the southwest part of the city. We've got some construction starting up at uh, 37th Street and Richmond Road with lane closures for both north and southbound. That'll be going until the end of this week. And then also construction up in the northeast, uh, westbound 64th Avenue at 4th Street. There's a left lane closure and that'll be in effect until 10 o'clock tonight. The grand opening of Leon's new store in Cross Iron starts Friday. Get grand opening specials on furniture and mattresses in both Calgary locations, plus save three times the GST. Leon stops the egg up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter. I'm Freddie Howard. You get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me, this Hey, hey this let me person. just say it. No, no, no. Whoa, uh, that's just a, a quick snippet. Much more coming up on the morning news uh, from uh, those clips last night where uh, President Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden squared off in their first presidential debate of three with his thoughts and what he could glean from the madness. We're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. I don't even know where to start, and we've heard comparisons to a dumpster fire. My favorite (laughs) line this morning is, not so much a debate, but a debacle. What were your thoughts uh, watching the debate last night? Well, I mean, look, uh, presidential debates, uh, especially televised debates since the 1960s, are one of the most revered moments of a presidential campaign. It is an opportunity for Americans to kind of get up close and personal with the two people who are tasked with potentially leading the country forward. Um, and last night was simply a, a, a disbursement and a collapse of a lower D, lower C Democratic convention uh, being these, these debates. It, it fell apart instantly. Uh, it fell apart throughout the entirety of the debate, uh, and it is unclear if anybody who was watching that last night who needed to make up their mind will have any faith uh, in, in either of these men going forward or in kind of politics in general in the country. It really was just shameful right from the start. The moderator lost control from the get-go, and you know, another quote we saw was, you know, the biggest loser of the night was the American people. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things that comes out of these debates is usually the question is who was the biggest winner? Uh, and it's hard to, to quantify or qualify who the biggest winner was last night because the loser, you're right, was the American public. But the ultimate loser was that 10% of Americans who are sitting there trying to figure out who they wanted to vote for. Because if there was somebody undecided going into that debate looking for some kind of hope to be able to figure out where they want to send their vote and how they want America to move forward, there was very little for them to be able to grab onto when it came to substance when it came to policy uh, and any of the any of the, the, the men's bases that were watching that uh, surely are not going to move in any direction outside of where they were already standing. When asked to take a stand against uh, white supremacy, one of the things that Donald Trump uh, said was uh, when he was talking about Proud Boys, he said, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Can you uh, break down for the listeners who the Proud Boys group is? It's something I had to look up yesterday, uh, but it was an interesting shout out. Yeah, so the Proud Boys are uh, an Islamophobic, uh, they are a transphobic, they are an anger and hate-filled right extremist right group in the United States. Uh, they have been called out uh, by nearly everyone, including the Anti-Defamation League in the United States. Uh, they proudly stand behind uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, they have uh, they they have shown up at polling stations across the United States to partake in in voter intimidation, uh, and they were uh, a leading uh, group involved in the Charlottesville rally. Uh, when the president had said that there are fine people on both sides, kind of giving them credence. And when the president was asked to disavow them last night, he, he wasn't able to. He said, stand by. His campaign press secretary was on cable news this morning trying to walk that back, saying he what Trump meant was for them to back off. But this is where we kind of wind up with, uh, with, with the president's people trying to figure out what it is that he meant to say or really trying to kind of spin it to, to make it seem like he said something else. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I think the bigger question needs to be asked. Why does the president of the United States continuously need to be asked to disavow white supremacists and hate organizations? This is something that a president of the United States should not even ever need to be asked. But this president has to be asked this question repeatedly. What do we even do now at this point? Do, do, do the American people just sit and wait for the, the, the vice presidential debate and then the next presidential debate? And will there even be one? There's some question about that even at coming well, out of last night. Yeah, I mean, look, the vice presidential debate obviously is going to be of interest uh, for most Americans, which is different because usually uh, it's one of the lesser tuned into debates during the uh, during the campaign. Uh, regarding a second debate, we don't know if there's going to be one. The president says that he wants to partake. Joe Biden says he wants to partake. But there were questions surrounding last night, uh, you know, towards Joe Biden saying, why are you standing on stage during what is uh, the dissolution of the kind of uh, history surrounding these debates right now? Why didn't he just walk away? We're, we're unclear if there is going to be a second debate because really with such a small segment of the population needing to make up their mind another debate isn't going to do anything but potentially push people further away not only from the two men standing on stage but from casting a ballot in general i want you to uh, you know you, you mentioned the uh, the republican uh, well the handlers of donald trump having to walk back some of his comments and i'm hoping you can expand a bit on uh, one of your comments on twitter uh the republican party and the situation they're in you say republicans have been put in an impossible situation they can't say trump did a good job in the debates but they also can't openly criticize his performance if you can break that down for us yeah well look 
some Republicans, including Chris Christie, who prepped the president over the weekend for this debate, came out and said the president came out too hot uh, and he didn't simmer down. That's as, as, as critical as Republicans can be right now because they understand if they come out and say the president did a bad job, if any Republicans are up for election, Trump tries to play kingmaker and he could actively try to work to get these people out of office if they stand away from him. They can't say he did a good job. They can't say he did a bad job. So they're left trying to figure out ways to deflect this and make it a problem for Joe Biden and make it a problem for, uh, for for the Democratic Party or make it a problem for moderator Chris Wallace. This really is a tough spot for Republicans. Democrats can say, look, Joe Biden was put in a position where he simply wasn't able to talk because Donald Trump interrupted him at every opportunity or needed to get the last word in after Joe Biden was given his two minutes to speak. Republicans don't have that opportunity. Donald Trump went in there swinging and he overswung. Reggie, a lot of talk about the mail-in ballots towards the end of the debate. Does what the, the, all the things that Donald said and put uh, Donald Trump said and put you know those ballots in question again? Does that change people voting? Well, I mean, look, the president of the United States continues to use baseless claims of fraud to cast doubt on the legitimacy of of, of the election across the United States. Uh, and while that may stoke fear within his base, and it may stoke fear across some of the older segments of the population who typically may not be used to voting by mail, I don't think that this is going to do anything uh, but potentially increase the zeal of people or send a surge of Biden voters to the polls uh, because of the president's uh, inability to be able to say whether he'll accept the results or whether this is going to be a rigged election against him if he doesn't like uh, that Joe Biden potentially walks away with uh, a monumental number of electoral college uh, votes. But the president as well openly asked his supporters to engage in voter intimidation at the polls mm-hmm. and some states allow for open carry. So there, there really are problems uh, with how the president has delegitimized the election so far and what that's going to mean in the weeks to come. To Sue's point, we have the vice presidential debates coming up, and there are two more on the docket for the presidential debates. Is there any way we could see a change in format, breaking convention of what we'd normally see in a presidential debate? Or a mic control a button? Mic control, like, is there any <laughs> yeah, talk I- of that? I mean, look, a mic control button runs the risk of the moderator uh, showing bias or partisanship if they try to cut somebody's mic off. Uh, so I think the committee on debates here, which is a nonpartisan committee, uh, is really going to have to figure out how the format is going to work in a debate number two, because we don't see this in typical presidential debates. Even in 2016, the president moved around. He was a little interjectory, but he didn't do what he did last night. Uh, and the, the, the committee may have to look and say, is there really a point of holding a second debate if we are simply going to see this gong show that we saw uh, in the first debate because it doesn't do anything to advance the American political agenda for either Republicans or Democrats because at the end of the day, if anybody watched all 90 minutes of that last night, nobody will be able to say, here's what this candidate is saying about what they want to do with America going forward because it simply was a slugfest. Reggie, we'll leave it there. We could talk to you about this forever. It was just a crazy night for sure. I'll, I'll leave you that with this quote. It was my favorite of the night. It was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck and that pretty much describes it, does uh, I mean, watch to see what polls have to say over the coming days about what they saw last night. That could give you a lot of insight as to where this election is headed. Thanks, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. Well, we spotted a couple of flashing police lights 
along Highway 22X west of McLeod Trail. There's a set at 6th Street and then a set at James McCavitt Road. We're not quite sure why they're there. They are just off to the right shoulder, still providing a little bit of a distraction as you head through this ongoing construction zone. Perhaps they're there to just spread awareness of the construction zone. So if you're heading through there, expect a little bit of a slowdown, especially around McLeod Trail. We were seeing some buildup in that eastbound direction approaching the construction. Northbound McLeod Trail, though, as you leave Chaparral and Walden, off to a pretty good start volume-wise, continuing up towards Anderson Road. Not too many uh, delays in that direction. There is still construction, though, north of Heritage Drive for bridge work. Uh, this has just two lanes open in both directions, so that'll be another spot you're going to see some delays. 14th Street, great option up towards Glenmore Trail, as is Elbow Drive up towards Glenmore. Deerfoot, we are seeing that steady build in volume between Barlow Trail and Southland Drive. The grand opening of Leon's new store in Cross Iron starts Friday. Get grand opening specials on furniture and mattresses in both Calgary locations. Plus, save three times the GST. Leon's.ca up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter. I'm Freddie Howard. Body language. Body language. Body language. 642 on the morning news. In every political debate, it's common to try and choose a winner. Body language is a part of that criteria. But how do you know who dominated others with nonverbal expression? To break down yesterday's body language in the presidential debate, the first of three, we're speaking with Mark Bowden, an expert in human behavior and body language and president of Truth Plane Communication Training Company. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. We'll, we'll break down the particulars of last night, but just give us a little bit of an insight as to, as to what sorts of things we can learn by watching someone's body language. Yes, yeah, so certainly we can learn how comfortable or stressed they are in certain situations, and even down to some specifics around what areas, what questions, what topics uh, they're more comfortable with, and the ones that they maybe weren't expecting or put them under stress because they don't have a good answer for themselves. Okay, knowing that you would be chatting with us today and no doubt just wanting to watch out of your own curiosity, let's break down what you thought of Donald Trump and Joe Biden last night. And you can give us the, the, uh, the you know, the kind of the, the topics and then how each of them fared. Yeah, okay. Well, let's just look at um, how they first appeared to us. There was no handshake due to the, uh, the COVID regulations. And so Trump's usual way of dominating the situation by pulling people into his space and dominating them in that space, that wasn't available to him. So here's what he did instead. He made sure that he slowly entered the studio and slowly came up to the, uh, to the lectern and therefore dominated the time instead of the space. He dominated the time that we had to watch him as uh, Biden was there very, very quickly. We also look at the way they showed up dressed. So Biden, kind of a bit softer, that kind of frilly-ish pocket square uh, uh, in, his, in his pocket there, and a candy cane tie, something actually a little bit kind of sweet and almost kind of frivolous, whereas Trump, you know, deep conservative colors, red-blue striped tie, larger pin of a flag flying uh, on his lapel there. So again, a bit more stoic, a bit kind of heavier there. So, you know, the things that we'd expect from both of them are often done in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. What about even, you know, working the camera? We did see that uh, Vice President Joe Biden was staring at the camera at certain times, addressing the people versus Donald Trump. He, he seemed to be just staring at Biden or the uh, moderator. Yeah, so we've seen this from Biden before um, in his in debates that he's done before. 
he's actually quite good um, at being quite evangelistic, almost like a TV evangelist. He looks right down the camera. Uh, he ramps his energy up. He gets his, his gestures symmetrical, and he comes down his center line, and then he lowers his tone but raises his energy, uh, and that really grabs the audience. So we know that he is really on form for himself. He's pretty pleased about the way he's, he's performing, and he's got a good subject for him that he thinks will re- he's got a good way of saying it, and it'll hit the people when he when he quietens down and he looks down that camera, he really feels he's making a point. But we did see at one point where he wanted to do that, uh, a rehearsed piece, I think, around um, his, his son who was in the military, and Trump managed to deflect that into his other son who had uh, a drugs problem, and he wasn't ready to talk about that. And so the energy from his first piece went into his second piece there, and he got a bit destabilized talking about his his son with the drug issue. And what about their facial expressions? What did you see there, especially their mouths? Yeah, so look, Trump has a has a classic mouth gesture, which is the lip purse. So that's when you kind of squeeze your lips together and make a kind of a big funnel at the front. And with Trump, the bigger that lip purse, the more he isn't happy or disagrees with what is going on. And I think the first lip purse that we saw from him that evening, because we we expect to see many, but the first one was on when Biden said uh, 7 million people contracted COVID. And there was a big disagreement there from, from Trump, or certainly he wasn't happy about that number or that issue being brought up. What we didn't see from him is that often he uses uh, moderation or regulator gestures. These are the gestures that, um, that control conversations. Often he'll do those in his face. He'll do a barrage of, of often kind of quite weird, cold faces, kind of mugged faces, in order to attract attention over to him and away from whoever is talking. We didn't see really any of that. Uh, in this debate, and that would, I think, suggest that he was way more stressed than he normally would be in any kind of debate or questioning, more likely, situation that we've seen before. Now, um, Biden, I think what's interesting with him is we'll see these breaks in his speech, and we'll see that show up in his face again when he gets under stress. He's dealing uh, continually with a, with a stutter to an extent. And so we start to see this kind of stop start in his words again, which show up in his face again when he's under stress. And, you know, we're going to have to leave it there. We could uh, delve yeah. deeper into this. It's, it's fascinating. And uh, you might have to rewatch some of these clips to uh, see what you pointed out for us uh, this morning, Mark. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. That is Mark Bowden, expert in human behavior and body language and president of Truth Plane Communication Training Company. 648 helicopter traffic now for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. Well, we're flying over top of a collision southbound 36th Street at 26th Avenue through the southeast. Looks like the right lane is blocked off in that southbound direction and traffic's not getting through on eastbound 26th Avenue. Uh, so if you're headed through this area, uh, it's not causing a huge backup, but it is definitely a distraction. There's a lot of flashing lights in the area. We are also seeing a Deerfoot Trail starting to build in volume as you make your way southbound down towards Memorial Drive. Northbound lanes, that typical slowdown approaching Anderson Road and Southland Drive as well. And Glenmore, that's a great drive for you. Just watch for the construction at 68th Street here in the southeast. That has a speed restriction.
been in place for both directions, but volume-wise, things are nice and light out towards Deerfoot. While Football to Zone has more live football than anyone else, exclusive Premier League, exclusive UEFA Champions League, all the NFL, to Zone. Start your free trial today at DAZN.com. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. Six fifty now, and an early morning vote saw the Liberal government's new COVID nineteen benefits package get unanimous approval in the House of Commons. We're joined now by Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa bureau chief for Global News and host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you guys? Uh, we're good. Did you get any sleep? And what the heck went down <laughs> last night? That went well into the morning hours, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I did not get a lot of sleep. Although, confess, I did not watch the entire vote because I was quite sure. The government would, in fact, not fall on this, even though it was an unexpected confidence vote. Um, and it took a lot of folks by surprise. I was watching the presidential debate last night, and afterwards I tweeted, hey, in Canadian politics, government-facing confidence vote. And the number of tweets back, people say, wait, what confidence vote? What are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Yep. The government could fall? Um, this was essentially the Liberals daring the opposition to bring them down, saying, look, uh, you want to complain about this bill? Fine, let's go to an election. They knew they were very safe because the NDP was going to back this bill. They'd already given them their word. That's all they need to stay in power. Uh, keep in mind, for folks at home, this is not the confidence vote on the throne speech. That one was promised. Mm-hmm. This was a surprise confidence vote on the COVID-19 additional relief benefits that the government is introducing that include things like sick leave, the transition from CERB to EI, the additional money that people who are transitioning to EI are going to get, uh, as well as the caretaker benefit. It's about $34 billion in new spending. And the opposition was pretty irked about it because the government essentially uh, put the bum rush on putting this through. It it just uh, was put through Parliament in a matter of hours, very little debate. Of course, MPs fundamental job is to do what? Well, to oversee government spending. And $34 billion is a lot of money. The Liberals argued they had to do this because the CERB was running out. The opposition said, yes, that's true. However, you are the ones who prorogued Parliament. Put yourselves in this situation. At the end of the day, the opposition made sure that Canadians got these benefits. Uh, but let there be no doubt, they were not happy about the way in which this was done. Mm. Mercedes, a piece that interested me was that clarification between those people, Serbs done, but those people who did not qualify for EI but still needed some sort of help. And there seems to be more clarity when it comes to that. Yeah, there's there's a little more clarity on, on who qualifies. There was a lot of concern that what was going to happen is Serb was going to wrap up and that people were going to either have nothing or they were going to be about $500 off, uh, worse off a month. That, by the way, was the number we used to give people on EI. It increased under CERB. Guess what happens with government spending? When you increase things, it's harder and harder to ever take those numbers away. And for a lot of folks who've lost their job due to the pandemic, um, they are struggling to get by still. And the argument was made that they just, they could not get by on this. Uh, this is through no fault of their own. You're unable to really go out and find a job right now because there's not a lot that's opening up. Uh, the debate against it has been that people are arguing some people on low-income jobs are not returning to work because they're making more on the CERB, and that's been a real sore point uh, on both sides of the debate, a big sensitivity. So that's essentially what's in this bill. It's the transition off of CERB onto EI and the amount of money you'll get, plus the sickness benefit, which you don't have to have COVID-19 to qualify for. Under the previous one, if you had COVID, you got federal sickness benefits. Now, if you have the cold or a flu, Uh, 
they don't want people coming into work and risking transferring that. Uh, they also, you know, this is an NDP motion saying they want people to have that federal sick leave. The NDP wants to make it permanent, even though that was traditionally a provincial jurisdiction. So that's what's in there for there. And then, of course, the caretaker benefit, which is if you're home looking after your kids because they can't go to school because of COVID-19 and the school is closed, or they have COVID, or you're looking after a loved one who has COVID, um, you're not completely out of money, out of work. Thank you for the update, Mercedes. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief. Time for great ideas for... There's... Hold you till it comes. Just water for me down. The average in the sun. on the morning news. Orange Shirt Day is nationally recognized to promote awareness and education on the history and legacy of residential schools, to understand the experiences of residential school survivors, intergenerational survivors, and those who simply did not survive. This year, it's going digital with more. We're joined by residential school survivor and digital Orange Day Shirt Day host, rather, Stephanie Harp. Good morning to you, Stephanie. Good morning. We'll we'll get more into Orange Shirt Day in a second, but I want to talk about this pivot to the digital side of things because it must have been very difficult for your group because I think the whole point is to see many, many people throughout different cities and towns wearing the orange shirts in public for that awareness. So uh, how's it going to look this year? Um, Well, we had uh, Jesse Lipscomb and his wonderful team uh, doing a a great job of um, safe and uh, uh, you know, a location and, um, you know, for, for everyone. So, um, to, to be a part, part of it and to, to see it in action was, uh, quite amazing. And they did, uh, you know, have to piece it together. And, um, I, I think it's going to come out just a really, really amazing and epic elevation of truth. Well, Stephanie, let's talk about uh, just quickly. I mean, we could talk forever about it. It's such an important topic and it is getting much more attention as it should. The the residential school situation, you're a survivor of it. How important is Orange Shirt Day and that we continue to just raise the awar- awareness about this topic? Um, well, it's really important because that uh, uh, traumatized and, and uh, it was genocide to a whole uh, you know, about all our people across the country, right? So that still affects us today. It bleeds into our everyday of living, whether we're still on our healing journey, whether we are, are still in our pain and, and, and trauma. And uh, so it's, it's really important to talk about that, to let other Canadians know that this did happen and that it's shocking. The last school was closed in 1996. Wow. And um, you know, um, you know that place that uh, I was in here in Edmonton is the brick building still stands there. Um, some of these uh, schools are not always registered. Uh, the Indian Day schools as well. So there's a lot of a lot of you know um, shame and just uh, you know uh, a traumatic history and horrific time. So you know why aren't the mass graves marked, mm-hmm. recorded? Um, looked at, um, honored, and uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch uh, more work that needs to be done. Yeah, much work, and uh, you know, you mentioned uh, obviously the awareness when it comes to the orange shirts. Uh, for me, 
uh, the education piece, I, I had only learned in the past year or two that the school's uh, last one shut down in 1996. And, uh, you know, to me, it seems a little bit of ignorance on my part. But I, I, I think that a lot of people might be shocked that it wasn't 60 years ago that the last school shut down. Do you find that in, in uh, your, uh, your time with the Orange Shirt organization? Um, well, just just being an, an uh, you know uh, an advocate uh, for my people, um, yeah, I, I hear that a lot from Canadians. They don't know, they they never knew, and uh, you know, uh, as an Indigenous person, I wasn't when you know doing history in the books. I I knew a lot of this wasn't true, and why wasn't this talked about? And this talked about. Um, so you know, I I knew very young that people are getting uh, you know are miseducated. And uh, as long as we keep talking about this, this is the best thing for all Canadians to come together in an understanding that when they see an Indigenous person suffering, they know why. Agree totally. So, Stephanie, how can we honour and celebrate Orange Shirt Day? What do you, what do you want us to do? Um, please tune in uh, to our online event uh, with uh, Jesse Lipscomb and uh, Make It Awkward and Be the Change. Uh, along with Blue Lantern Incorporated. Um, this will be online virtual event, and that's partnered with the City of Edmonton, Edmonton Public Library, the Earned Shirt Society, and, uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm doing the host, uh, the hosting for that event, and uh, we have uh, uh, DJ Cree, uh, Matthew Creation, um, and we also have Dr. Lana Whiskey Jack, Dancing Cree, Elder Elsie Paul, um, you know, just to name a few. And uh, we're honoring uh, this day and to elevate truth and to educate. And uh, please go uh, online to uh, the, uh, Be the Change and Make It Awkward. Um, and you can find us on Facebook. We have all that advertising everywhere. Yes. We want everyone to listen, to pay attention, to and you know get involved, and then after do some action. That's okay. what Jesse and I want for everyone. Once you get the truth, and once you understand, we would like you to be more involved, and uh, that's really important to us for change. All about the information, and it's good to see that the pandemic not putting the brakes on this very important event. Thanks for your time, Stephanie. Thank you. Stephanie Harp, residential school survivor and digital Orange Shirt Day host. And a lot of different websites, but the one you want to know for sure is orangeshirtday.org. It's time for helicopter traffic now for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master planned community. Collision to watch out for in the southwest part of the city along southbound Crochelle Trail. It's on the exit ramp to eastbound Glenmore blocking off the right lane, but it's not causing a huge backup. In fact, both southbound Crochelle and eastbound Glenmore moving fine throughout the southwest. We are still seeing some delays, though, on northbound Deerfoot between Barlow Trail and Southland Drive. It'll be about 12 minutes between Stony Trail and 17th Avenue. And then on the northeast end of Deerfoot, a great drive southbound coming off the QB2 down to Memorial. Tonight's Lotto 649 draws an estimated $5 million, plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $5 million. Get that Lotto 649 feeling. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard.